Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. Hi, welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm Jennifer Martin. In this episode, we're going to take the temperature of the Australian media. We're going to ask who owns who, who can say what without getting sued, and what does it mean when fake news and hate speech goes unchecked in our democracy? They're big questions, and the man in the hot seat to answer them is none other than Dr Dennis Muller. He is a senior research fellow from the University of Melbourne's Centre for Advancing Journalism. Now, Dr Muller is a leading expert on media ethics, and he worked as a journalist for 27 years, including being assistant editor at the Sydney Morning Herald and the associate editor at The Age. Dennis, welcome to Communication Mixdown. Thank you very much, Jen. Now, you have been in the media a lot this week um, regarding a wonderful article you wrote for The Conversation, which struck a chord with so many people. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it came from just a routine visit to my hairdresser. I haven't got much hair, but it does have to be cut from time to time. And the lady who cuts it, who I've called Mrs. E, uh, runs this little salon in my neighbourhood, and I've been going to her for years. Uh, and this, on this occasion, while she doesn't often talk about politics or sex or religion, um, she did tell me that uh, a client who'd been coming to her for 20 years had come in the previous week and had just unleashed a tirade against Muslims. Now, Mrs. E is just a petite lady with a nice, bright smile and a lovely, warm personality. Um, and she heard this out uh, for a while, and then she said to this lady, well, I'm a Muslim, and I'm sorry to say that I'm not going to cut your hair anymore after 20 years. And so here we have a situation in which uh, a personal relationship, I mean, all of us know that when we go to the hairdresser, they actually, they touch us, they touch our body. It's a very, really quite an intimate relationship. I'm thinking of my mother's hairdresser. She knows more about my family than I think I do. It's a relationship that goes back 30 years. I'm serious about that. Yeah, well... Mrs. E's been running this little salon for about 40 years. Mm. She came to Australia from the Balkans as a little girl. Um, She knows all about the history of the place. She cuts the hair of disabled people and elderly people in local institutions. There's nothing in the shop or in her dress to give away her religion because she regards it as something completely private. Um, I mean, I grew up in the Catholic Church though I don't practice now, but I wouldn't have a crucifix in my study at the university, even if I was practicing. Mm. So it's a private matter religion. 
but of course, it goes very deep. So when she was on the receiving end of this tirade, it was more than even she could cope with. And as I said in the piece, this doesn't just come out of the blue. No, in in that article, you trace it trace it right back. So so tell us, explain to us how this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Well, Australia's been a remarkable success since the introduction of the post-war migrant boom. It wasn't always so. It was a slow burn. It started off with the, the, the shipload of so-called beautiful bolts, people from the Baltic states, who were white and handsome so that the local population would not be frightened. Goodness, heaven, uh, to, heaven yeah, that, forbid yeah, we'd I mean, be frightened. You wouldn't want people who weren't white, would you, coming oh, to Australia? Goodness. So that was the start. But it was a slow burn. But eventually we, and, and there were lots and lots of instances of you know, racial slurs and so on. But over time, Australians became very proud of this multicultural project. Um, but then in 1996, I think there was a turning point. Pauline Hanson was elected to the federal parliament. She made a notorious maiden speech in which she said, among other things, that Australia was being swamped by Asians. Sorry, that's 20 years ago. Has it been that long? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and John Howard, who was then Prime Minister, newly minted, um, instead of repudiating this view, defended it as free speech Hmm. and as an assault on political correctness. So instead of shutting it down as... uh, uh, another Prime Minister, including Malcolm Fraser, would have done. In a sense, he legitimised it. And then we had a succession. We had the so-called Tampa election in 2001, where both people who were overwhelmingly Muslim uh, became the butt of that assertion by John Howard about national sovereignty. You know, we will decide who comes to this country in the circumstances in which they come. Um, and then, of course, it it obviously had political salience, political value. And so the politicians from both sides piled in at this point, don't they? Um, And then in the 2013 election, um, Kevin Rudd takes it one step further and lowers the boom on those people who are still uh, on Manus and Nauru, saying they'll never come to Australia. And then, of course, Tony Abbott uh, wins an election on a slogan of stopping the boats. So you can see how the political um, potency of this grew and grew. And my, my belief is that that legitimises ordinary citizens, like this lady in the salon, to say things that in another climate they wouldn't feel able to say. It's interesting, isn't it, this idea of I have an opinion, I can express my opinion. Well, you can have your opinion, but there are consequences to expressing that opinion, which I think um, somehow that seems to have got lost. And it's this notion, as, as you say when you talk about Pauline Hanson, that was basically bad behaviour that wasn't shut down mm. and then became legitimised as, oh, it's free speech, it's my opinion, or we're protecting ourselves, you know, all of that. All of that. Yeah. And so you have the Attorney General, George Brandis, saying last year that everybody has a right to be a bigot. Mm-hmm. Well, he discovered where that leads, didn't he, when Pauline Hanson, in, back in August, walked into the Senate wearing a burqa. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's where this eventually leads. Yes. And <clears throat> to his credit, Brandis uh, assailed Hanson for that. But it's too late. The, yes. Already this has begun to seep into 
public discourse. It's so interesting, isn't it? It's it's this culture of of um, entitlement, of sort of protectionism, and I want to, if I can, um, Dennis, and, and stay with me. I want to, I want to take us into another realm of of power, um, and perhaps a couple. But let's let's look at television and let's look at the Channel Seven newsroom and mm. that culture, because we talk about communication and media, and we have a, um, a very unfortunate, well, awful incident of a um, cadet being sacked. Yeah, uh, Amy Torber. Mm. Um, she complained that uh, a senior male reporter in the newsroom uh, had basically s- accused her of being a lesbian. Nothing the matter with being a lesbian, but the basis of the accusation was what mattered. Um, and he said the reason that she was a lesbian was that she wasn't married at 27. Well, that's a pretty rude thing to say, isn't it? And so she lodged a complaint against him, uh, saying that was sexual harassment, which it clearly was. Um, but instead of him being dealt with by the station, she gets pulled in by the HR department, and we have a tape which has been well and truly ventilated now, in which uh, she's told she's not entitled to have uh, a witness or uh, a friend in the room, and she's told that there have been allegations of bullying against her, which turn out to be completely trumped up, if you'll forgive that dreadful verb. (laughs) We'll get Um, to him. (laughs) uh, Because the person who's alleged to have made the complaint Mm. against her is in fact another cadet who is a male and a friend of hers. Yes. And he asks to have his name taken off this complaint and he's dismissed. So she is sacked. Mm. The senior male reporter is kept on. And I think that's saying an awful lot about the culture of the Channel 7 organisation. Isn't it? And I I wanted to... I want to talk about we can join this up with what's happening with, you know, Harry Weinstein Mm. over there. But I want to just talk about your own experience. You've been chief of staff of newsrooms um, and, you know, media ethics. This This is your game. How would you have treated something like that or how did you treat incidents like that? Well, I worked a lot of my life at the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, which actually had a rather a churchy culture. The Fairfaxes were Congregationalists. <laughs> uh, having alcohol on the premises was a sacking offence. It was really rather a monastic sort of atmosphere. There weren't very many women to begin with. Yes. But we had an iron law hmm. among the senior people at the Herald, and the iron law was this, keep your hands off the help. Mm. Mm. And, and people who didn't, um, got found out, and they would they were dealt with. They were given a warning often, uh, and then if the behaviour persisted, then they just got the sack. And let's let's take it up from the realm of you know the, the sexual harassment because it it's bullying again. You know it's mm. you know there's sexual harassment, there's bullying. It's it's bad behaviour, um, and you didn't tolerate that either. No, we room, we, did we didn't, um, and no, we didn't tolerate. Uh, even though you know journalism is notorious for having a heavy drinking culture, and mm. the, and there were uh, individuals who had drinking problems, uh, they sometimes they were just terminated uh, if if the drinking got in the way of their work, or if they got really sick, uh, then they were sent off for rehabilitation, for which the company paid. Actually, there was a thing called the Fairfax Foundation. And it was a kind of a, a welfare system within the company, rather paternalistic and out of date sounding now, but it meant that, that, that men, and they were all men, um, 
could be taken out of circulation and sent away to dry out at the company's expense. It's so interesting you say that because... Um, I did study into the Walkley Awards and just through that, looking at the number of um, male journalists who died young, you know, mm. from, from alcoholism. Oh, you know, and, and not just journalists, but printers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so uh, there, was, uh, there was a culture at the organisation of fairly high expectations of, um, of behaviour, not just in relation to uh, treatment of women, because, mm. as I said, there weren't very many women to be maltreated, um, and most of them were secretarial staff, very few women journalists, except in the women's section. But the general standards of behaviour uh, were pretty high at, at the Herald, and it was much the same at the age. Uh, when I came to the age, although booze was on the premises there, um, the sub-editors had a thing called the Bog Bar, which was a refrigerator in the men's lavatory, oh, uh, where they used men and Women sub-editors used to repair between the editions and um, refresh themselves. It's quite a different culture, but nonetheless, uh, I don't recall an instance in my seven years at the age where that led to any sort of sexual misbehaviour, even though there were both men and women involved late at night. There is something exquisitely beautiful about the fact that Amy um, recorded yes. that, that, that interview. She's a savvy young woman, and yeah. she's tough. Yeah. But tough though she was, you could hear her voice breaking under the strain. Yes. And so it, I think that's an index of the damage that this sort of treatment can do, even to a resourceful, tough, intelligent person. Who shouldn't have to do it. No. And I think, Dennis, this brings us back really, really well to your hairdresser and yeah. what she experienced and didn't expect to experience just in the line of doing her job, something she's done every day, um, just as Amy didn't expect what happened to her. And do you think as a as an ethicist that this is this is where, you know, the change happens? Does it happen on that individual level? I think so. Uh, and I but I think more particularly it's at that level that the rest of us understand yes. what it really means. It's it's one thing to talk in large abstractions about asylum seekers, refugees, national sovereignty, border protection. You can throw these labels and abstractions around, but it, when you get down to the individual level, you and me, um, Mrs. E and her client, um, that's the level at which everybody understands what it would be like. It would be quite easy for each of us, I think, to imagine what that encounter must have been like for her. So with the issue with same-sex marriage, you know, I look at my lovely friend, I go, what right do I have to say who she can love and how she can love them? Hmm. That's that's the, the level that I see. But that's not enough, is it? I, um, we need, we do need, we're a society, we live together as a community, we do need our leaders to frame policy and laws to protect us. And we need to frame the national debate in respectful terms and we need to be strong enough morally as politicians not to exploit what I think of as the dark side of our political personality but rather to appeal to the angels in our, in our makeup, as it were. And that's what's not been happening in Australia uh, for at least 20 years. There's been... I think uh, opportunistic exploitation of fear, uh, anger, greed, 
insecurity. Now, the sources of these feelings are not irrational. I mean, fear came from from September 11, 2001. Yes. Um, fear of loss of jobs and so on. These things came from the effect of globalization. These fears don't come from nowhere. No. But the question is, how do we as politicians exploit or not exploit them? We're just going to go to a break, um, Dennis, but we will be back shortly after this announcement um, to continue our discussion. Good. The state government wants to give property developers access to valuable inner-city land that is currently used for public housing. It has announced a large-scale renewal program that will involve the forced removal of tenants and the demolition of nine housing estates across Melbourne. Thousands of new homes will be built on the estates, but the vast majority of these will be privately owned. The developers stand to make big profits by cashing in on land that should be used for public housing. There are nearly 35,000 Victorians on the public housing wait list and there is a housing affordability crisis across most of the state. The need for thousands of new public housing homes is critical. Instead, the government wants to let developers in to build thousands of unaffordable private apartments. Join a community rally to celebrate and defend public housing this Sunday, October the 15th, 1pm at Debney's Park, Mount Alexander Road, Flemington. There'll be speakers, music, kids' activities and a barbecue organised by the Public Housing Defence Network, a 3CR supporter. I'm Tash Sultana and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe, do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. You're with Communication Mixed Down and I'm Jennifer Martin and here in the studio with me is Dr Dennis Muller. He is an expert on media ethics from the University of Melbourne. Now, Dennis, I'd like to shift us now to looking at the big picture in media in Australia here. The Senate recently voted to change media ownership laws. They scrapped the two out of three rule and the reach rule. Can you help us understand exactly what this means? What it means is we're going back to the old days before the big reforms of Paul Keating in 1987 when he famously said you can be a prince of print or a queen of screen but not both and he's, and he's separated ownership of television from ownership of newspapers. The idea was, among other things, to try to increase diversity in what is already a very concentrated media ownership landscape. So what this is going to do is turn the clock back to the 1950s, 60s, 70s and 80s, where um, one company will be able to own a radio station, a TV channel and a newspaper in the one market. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking of all the marriages to approve. We, we do that. <laughs> okay, they can all get to bed together. They can. But no. Yeah, but the trouble is they're unlikely to breed. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I, I'm not going there. No, don't yeah, go there, No, Jen. I won't no, go there. Not, certainly not. Um, <laughs> When I was a reporter on the Sydney Morning Herald, the Herald owned Channel 7 in Sydney, Radio 2GB, which it still does, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Sun Herald, the Sun, which is an afternoon newspaper, the Financial Review, and it also owned the Newcastle Morning Herald, the Canberra Times, and so on. Now, when I filed a story, I filed eight carbons. Now, that's how old I am. Eight carbon copies. But the carbon copies of my story were distributed around all these different places. So the one story, the one version of that truth was disseminated across all these different platforms. Mm. So that was what Keating was trying to get away from. He was trying to break that down. Well, we're going back to that now. 
And so what is likely to happen, I think, is that uh, that uh, Fairfax, who run The Age in Melbourne and the Sydney Morning Herald, are likely to merge perhaps with Channel 9. That seems to have been talked about quite a lot. Looks as though Murdoch uh, has missed out on Channel 10. Yes. Because the administrators have preferred a bid from CBS in America. And I notice, incidentally, that um, the Herald Sun this morning is running a story on page three, which is sort of part of the News Corp reaction to that, which is to spoil Channel 10. And there's a, a story about how The Simpsons and a whole heap of other high-profile programs are being taken off Channel 10 because they're owned by Fox, which is owned by Rupert. So interesting. So there's a bit of revenge going on, I think. But uh, what is likely to happen is the big picture is there are going to be mergers and acquisitions which will concentrate ownership more and have, uh, I think, bad consequences for um, the diversity of opinion. Well, it's very nice to be sitting in 3CR, but... You know, little little 3CR has to fight very hard for survival to keep its diversity of voices, something I get yep. very, very, very angry about. So we're going to be seeing a shrinking. That that can't be good for democracy. No, it can't. And there is this kind of fairy tale idea about that um, online media provides, you know, a, a, a million new voices. Well, it simply isn't true. Uh, the technology exists and, of course, the theory is there. But in fact, by far, the most often visited websites for news are the ones that are owned by the big media corporations. So at the moment, the idea of relying on the internet for diversity is uh, just pie in the sky. And look, in the US, of course, we do have Trump savaging the media. But here in Australia, we've also had successive governments attacking the national broadcaster, the ABC. Malcolm Turnbull labelling um, the ABC as elite media and responsible for distracting us from their narrative of economic growth. So if this is going to be a narrowing, what is, what is this going to do to our conversation? Well, what it is going to do, I think, is going to make the ABC even more important particularly in regional and rural areas. Yes. Because already we've seen commercial television news services in regional Victoria uh, centralised. The WIN, the Wind TV newsroom, is now located in Wollongong. Right. Which is about as far from Mildura as Paris is from Berlin. Now, how you expect uh, a newsroom operating out of Wollongong to be anywhere near in touch with what's going on in Horsham or Warrnambool, I have no idea. So um, there, the ABC's presence in the bush is going to be even more important. And I think the ABC recognised this because they've announced a uh, $50 million package uh, to, I think, create 80 new positions, mainly in journalism, in rural areas. But that's where we're going. Now... I think we are almost running out of time here, Dr. Muller, so I am going to wind up and I am just, no, I think we might have time. John's saying I have time for one more question. You know I'm fascinated by shield laws. I just don't want to leave without our listeners knowing what journos can and can't say. Okay. It's an impossible task I've given you. It's all right. Shield laws exist to allow journalists to protect the identity of people who've given them information in confidence. Yeah, these big stories. Built in, that's right. Built into the law now, into the Evidence Acts in five states and the Commonwealth. There's a question about who can claim that. But basically, if, if you're put in the witness box in court and told to give up the name of your confidential source, you can say, I decline on grounds of professional privilege, and the court decides whether to confer that privilege or not. 
and it has to do a, a balancing act between the public interest in your protecting your source and the public interest in getting the information for a fair trial. Yes. Uh, and they've got to take into account the consequences for the source and for you of forcing disclosure. That's basically what the shield laws do, and they're one of the very few legal privileges journalists have in Australia. And they're different, aren't they? They're different. That? The Commonwealth law says anyone, even a blogger and a person, you know, just running a website. Even a blogger. Even a blogger <laughs> can claim this. But the state laws don't say that. They say basically you've got to be working for a big media organisation. So who can claim this privilege is still up for grabs. There have been two major test cases, one in Western Australia, one in Victoria. Both have gone the way of the journalist. Thank goodness. So uh, the way the courts are starting to interpret this is encouraging, but it's early days. Thank you so much. Look, um, we're here with Dr. Dennis Muller, and we are just about to say goodbye to the ethics expert and senior fellow for the University of Melbourne Centre for Advancing Journalism. Thank you so much for talking us through such big issues and in such a, a wonderful way. Thank you so much, Jen. And that's it for another episode of Communication Mixdown for this week. We're here next Thursday. <laughs> 